So we're at the revelation, the revelation to John. Last book in the New Testament. We started in Genesis some weeks ago. and We started going through a book of the Bible each Wednesday night. And the intention was to try to take an entire book of the Bible, cover it in one night, talk about who wrote it, talk about when they wrote it, talk about what they wrote about and who they're writing to, and maybe some high points that um, are still relevant and still applicable to our lives today. So that's what we've been trying to do. And we have worked through now 65 books, both Old Testament and now in the New Testament. And we end on the... The last book in our New Testament, the Revelation to John. Now, if you are familiar with or you look ahead, there are 22 chapters in the Revelation to John. We are not going to try to cover all 22 chapters tonight. Rather, what I'm going to do is we're going to look at these first two, or we're going to look at chapter 2 and chapter 3. We're going to look at these seven churches tonight. And then the plan is to come back and we're just going to do a big, not even a 30,000 foot view. We're probably going to probably do like a 200,000 foot view starting in chapter 4 and working all the way through chapter 22. So if you have any more specific questions about what the revelation is and exactly what does this verse mean and what does this chapter mean, then the deacons are usually a very good source of information when it comes to especially the, the, the book of Revelation. They have it, they've got it memorized front to back so they would be happy to help you out with the information in those regards, especially some of those chapters and verses that you're not really sure what is the dragon and what is the woman and what is the child and what is the water and what is the fire and what does this mean and what does that mean and what's the difference in a trumpet and what's the difference in a bowl and what's the difference in this creature and that creature why does this creature seem a little apocalyptic and why does this creature seem a little bit friendly and all of these things come into play and they're good and one of the commentaries that I that I often look to says that the book Revelation the majority of it is information about things yet to come and so there are some things that you and I may not fully understand right now because it hasn't happened yet and it hasn't come yet. And so sometimes we try to think about things today or try to conceive things today that really may not come about until um, maybe later on in the future. So you can just imagine 50 years ago trying to explain somebody about social media or trying to explain somebody about how these devices work and just exactly how much time you will spend on one of these devices 50 years later. I mean, it's something that people have a hard time even trying to conceive. 50 years ago of what these things would do to us, for us, to us. I mean, it's just one of those things. 50 years ago, try to explain it, we would not have a conception. And so sometimes we get in the, in the revelation to John, sometimes we start trying to think about it in our finite mind and in, in the, in, with the experience and understanding we have today. And we sometimes think that, you know, this is written... One, written by John in the first century. And two, written at the revelation of God showing him things that are still yet to come. So, kind of my, kind of my uh, I guess, uh, disclaimer as we get into next week. But tonight, we're going to be in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. Now, the Revelation to John, the reason why it's entitled that, some of your Bibles may say a little bit different there in the heading. But the Revelation to John, the reason why that's written is because it's not John sitting down and he's writing a story. It's something that is being revealed to him. God is revealing to him, this is what is going to come about. This is what is going to take place. And so as he comes to John, 
John was one of the twelve apostles that Jesus called. Some people think he was probably the youngest of the apostles during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's the one, the same one that run the gospel of John. First, second, third in John. And now you have him writing the Revelation. So uh, history tells us that this is probably written around 95 AD. John, if not the only remaining apostle left alive, he is uh, towards the end of the life. They, and they really don't know for certain because the apostles uh, dispersed so much it's hard to really know exactly which one was the last one to die. But we're towards the end of the first century, 95 AD, John has now been banished to the island of Patmos. It's pretty much just like a uh, just a giant rock island set out in the middle and he was banished out there by the uh, Roman emperor and said I don't want to have anything to do with you. You go out there and while you're out there you're not, you're not my problem and I don't have to deal with you. He was also the one that for a season of time probably pastored the church there in Ephesus and so he definitely has experience and definitely has a, a, a stand with the New Testament church. So John is sitting there, and you can see this in John chapter 1. He is there on the island of Patmos, and he's there worshiping the Lord on the Lord's day, and Jesus shows up and says, write what you see. Write these things down. So, what does John do? John says, okay, so here is what I saw. So in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the Revelation, he's writing to the church. He's not writing to a specific geographical area. He's not writing to a specific ethnic ethnic group of people. He is writing to the church, Christians redeemed, both Jews and Greeks. And he's going to talk about these seven churches. Now these seven churches all have a name. And so John sits down and he's writing a letter, writing a message to all seven churches. Now, there are all specific places. There are all specific churches that he's writing to. But for the sake of our time tonight, what I, what I hopefully you'll see is that if you have been in church long enough, or if you've lived long enough and you've seen enough diversity of churches, you've come across these seven churches before. There are traits characteristics that we see in these seven churches that are still present today, that are still both positive and negative characteristics and traits today. And they're also, I would say, even a bit of a warning to us as we think about whether this is your church home or not your church home, when we think about, okay, so the church that I consider to be my church home, what kind of church is it? And maybe even ask ourselves the question, okay, so if Jesus was going to write a letter to First Baptist Church Wellston, and he was going to have John do the writing, and they were going to send it to us, and we were going to open it up, and it said to the church at First Baptist Church Wellston, what would Jesus say? So, let's look at these seven churches. Let's look at the characteristics. Let's look at the pros. Let's look, let's look at the positives. Let's look at the negatives. And let's just talk about how we have seen these churches come about today. So the first church is the church where? Where? Ephesus, right. Okay, so you see there, chapter 2, verse 1, he starts talking about to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now some people say, what is he talking about an angel? Some people think that he's talking to the preacher there in Ephesus. Some people think he's just a a terminology talking to the spiritual leadership there in Ephesus. Anyways, verse 2, chapter 2, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. 
but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and are not not and found them to be false. Then you go to verse four. But I have this against you. So you'll see within these seven churches, five churches, he will criticize them. Two churches, he will praise. So what I do whenever I'm going through here, you may not feel comfortable doing it, but I like to highlight or I like to underline or I like to mark. And so when I come through here, I know that five of these churches get a positive or get a negative critique. Two of the churches get a positive critique. So you see in verse 4, the church at Ephesus, he says, I, that here comes a negative critique, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. So he says... I know you're a church, and I know you're a church that holds the doctrine. That's what he's saying in verse 2 and verse 3. I know that you're a church that tries to hold the doctrine. I know that you're a church that seeks to uh, hold the line. I know you're a church that values right versus wrong. The problem is, is that you have become, and this is my terminology, you have become a cold church. There is such a thing as a church that is as biblically straight and as biblically true as a gun barrel and a church that can be just as cold and indifferent as a gun barrel. Both are possible. And most of these, when he gives a criticism, he tells them this is then what he wants them to do. So he says, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. They become a cold church. And it's not necessarily they abandon their love for themselves. It's they abandon their love for God. They abandon their love for Jesus. They had said, you know what? We have enough information to give us our works and to give us our boxes to check and to give us all these things that we have to do. And they had lost just that simple Passionate love for Jesus. Sometimes in our daily lives, we can get in a routine. And you know, I heard one time that the difference between a rut and a grave is just a matter of inches. And sometimes we can get into that. We're just, we're just moving through the daily routine and the daily grind. And we've lost that passion. We've lost that, we've lost that spark. We've lost that zeal. We've lost that excitement about God's Word. We get to the point that we're just going, 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 and going, going, going. And then we, we find ourselves thinking, you know what? I've read the Word, or I've heard the Word, or I know the Word. But when was the last time that I was excited about the Word? When was the last time that I was just overwhelmed with the goodness and the love of God? When was the last time that I was just in love with Jesus? And you say, well, Spence, that's not very masculine, you know, and that just kind of sounds a little weird. You're in love with Jesus, you know. Well, He's in love with me. So why shouldn't I be in love with Him? And why should my testimony be that Jesus loved me so much that I fell in love with Jesus and I haven't ever gotten over it. What's wrong with that testimony? And what's wrong with that excitement? And what's wrong with that, uh, that, that passion? And what's wrong with that just that warmness? So he tells them in Ephesus, be careful. Now, if you get around enough churches, and if you go in and out of enough churches, you're going to go into churches one day, if you haven't already, and that church will be a biblically... Biblically based church. And they will also be cold and unfriendly and indifferent. 
Now, why do they do that? Well, sometimes they do it out of protection. Sometimes they do it because they don't like the way you're dressed. Sometimes they do it because they don't know you. Or sometimes they do it just because they've just fallen out of love with Jesus. And the world has a way of doing that to us. The world has a way of making us jaded. The world has a way of making us feel like we can't put ourselves out there because we'll be taken advantage of. And the world has a way of getting you and I to go, everybody is trying to take advantage of us, so we're just going to constrict in, we're just going to huddle up, and we're just going to just focus on us. And it's possible to do that. He says, Church at Ephesus, remember, don't lose your first love. So he says... He says, verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. So he says, remember what Christ has done for you. Remember what God has done for you. Repent and do the works you did at first. Do the things you did at first. So somebody gets saved and then they find themselves 10 years later going, you know, I just feel stale and I feel distant and I feel apart from God. And you go, well, what happened? Well, I just don't know. Well, let's go back to when you first got saved. What you do? All you want to do is read your Bible. All you want to do is talk to people about Jesus. All you want to do was listen to Christian music. All you want to do is God, 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 Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And then you got more mature. And then you got more refined. And then... You didn't need all that stuff. And then you're like, I know better than that. I can handle that. And you get away from that. He says, go back to that. Go back to the things that you did when you first fell in love with Jesus. So the first church, the first church we got to be careful of is the cold church. The indifferent church. Then, still in chapter 2, or verse 8. Who is he writing to there? To the church of... Smyrna, okay? So, he's writing to the church of Smyrna, and if we had a lot more time, we'd go into the background of all these different churches, but really, right here, for the sake of time, um, we're just going to, you can go back if you want to and look about where Smyrna was, or Pergamum, or Thyatira, or Sardis, Philadelphia, but he says to the church of Smyrna, okay? Verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. He who has a hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Does anybody see a criticism there? Okay, so he said five of the churches he criticizes, two of the churches he praises. So then how does he praise them? Faithful. Louder? Be faithful. Be faithful. Okay, good. Yeah. So he tells them there. Verse 9. I know your tribulation. Saying, I know that you're being oppressed. I know that there is a world outside your doors that says there in verse 9, they slander you. There are people that say they are Jews, but they're actually working on behalf of Satan. That's verse 9. And he says in verse 10, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. You're going to be tested. Some of you are going to be opposed. And yet, and yet... You're not going to give up on me. There's some churches that are oppressed. There's some churches that are dealing with opposition that we don't even have any understanding about. Even today, whether it's China or the Coptic Christians in the Middle East or whether underground churches in Africa or underground churches in Southeast Asia, Right now, there's brothers and sisters in Christ that are 
under the threat of physical persecution if people watch them or see them publicly displaying their faith. You know, sometimes we take for granted that, you know what, we have all this freedom and we just assume everybody has this freedom and so lolly lolly law, everything's great until some oppression comes and then you watch the church scatter. One of the things that I heard some church leaders talk about when the COVID happened back in 2020 is they were saying that this will be a really good measuring to see where the true church is at. Because you see a whole group of people that are here and then all of a sudden when the oppression comes, you see who the true Christians are and who the pretenders are. So he comes in and he gives a word of praise to Smyrna and he says, listen, I understand that you are oppressed. I understand that there is more tribulation to come. But what have you done? You have been faithful to me. And in some way... There's an opportunity that we have to prepare ourselves for when the opposition comes. And I don't say if, I say when. And I don't think it's going to I don't think it's going to first start with a guard outside with a drawn firearm saying you cannot go in there. My personal opinion is going to start with telling us what we can say and what we can't say. I think it's going to proceed from that and not just saying what we can and what we can't say, but what we can Stand with and what we cannot stand with. I think the day is coming that if we do not affirm all of the LGBTC garbage, then we will be brought up for hate crime. We will be brought up for acts of violence. We will be brought up for discrimination. And we will see charges brought forth against people that are not willing to compromise, bend the knees, and go along with the rhetoric of the deranged and confused and unbiblical. They don't have to come in with tear gas and riot gear and to say we can't meet. All they have to do is say, you show up, we are going to find you, and we are going to put your name out on social media, and there will be a bunch of people that say, I don't want that. Opposition could come. The question is, is if the opposition comes, how are we going to respond? So, there's another church there in Smyrna. So, Ephesus, he gives a criticism to. Smyrna, he gives a praise to. Now we go to Pergamum. Okay? So now you get down to verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now that's a that's an allusion down to when Jesus comes back second time, he's a rider on the white horse, remember? And he's got the sharp two-edged sword, okay? Now, just get down there to verse 14. He's riding to the church of Pergamum and he says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling lot before the sons of Israel so they may not eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Can anybody tell me what he is referring to? Anybody remember what he's referring to? Anybody? Do what? Jezebel. Jezebel's coming up. This is about Balaam. Anybody remember what he's referring to? Yeah, he, uh, he told the king to send in people out of Israel to get them to go away from God. 
Yeah, in so many words. So you go. This, so this is a reference. You might write this down. In fact, if you want to, on the back of that prayer request list, there's a whole page that Sarah gives you for notes if you want to. So you can go back and you can fact check me if you want to. But you go back to chap- Numbers chapter 20 through Numbers chapter 22 and then Numbers chapter 25. But what you'll find is, is that the Israelites, they are coming through and Balak is a king. And Balak... Um, Sorry, chapter 22 through chapter 24. Chapter 20, chapter 22 through chapter 25. So anyways, so Moabites, Israelites are coming. The Moabites are led by the king Balak. He sees all these Israelites and he's like, you know what? We need to do something. We can't beat them militarily because God is on their side. So what we'll do is, is we'll have them cursed by someone that can curse them. And then they'll just kind of go their own way. So Balak sends for Balaam. And this is where you have the story of Balaam and his donkey, Right? Right? Which is why I think it's always funny. The donkey, um, the political representation of the donkey. But anyways, so you have... That's where my mind's at. Anyway, so so you have so you have Balaam. All right, so Balaam gets contracted by Balak, the king of Moab, to say, "Come and curse the people." Balaam shows up, and there's three different times Balaam shows up. And when Balak says curse him, all Balaam does is bless him. And Balak's like, "What are you doing?" And Balaam's going, "You know what? I'm not going to say anything, but what God is telling me to say." Well, that really upsets Balak, so then he sends Balaam away. You think, okay, Balaam left. The problem is is that somewhere in between Balaam leaving and the story moving on, somewhere, and you get this in Numbers chapter 25, and then also I believe it's in Numbers chapter... Yeah. Numbers chapter 31, but somewhere in between there, there is a inter, there is a conversation where Balaam looks at the Moabites and goes, you know what? I can't curse them, but I do have an idea of how you can defeat them. You don't go out militarily and conquer them. You just send out your women and intermarry with them. And when the women go out and they have they they have they intermarry, they have children, or you go out and you do business dealings with them, you go out and you invite them into your home. When you go out, your pagan worship will, will rub off on them, and before you know it, they will abandon their God and they will be pursuing after your gods. So that's why you see in Numbers 31 and then later on in Joshua where Balaam is killed. You go, why in the world was Balaam killed? Because he was a stumbling block. That's what Revelation chapter 3 is saying. He holds the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So that's a reference saying, so what Balaam did, even though he couldn't curse them, Balaam said, but I'll tell you a secret. Do you want to know how you get with them? Do you know how you want to defeat them? You do not have to go outright and destroy them. You just make them ineffective and you turn them from worshiping their God. So what does Jesus say through the pen of John as a negative to write to Pergamum? He says, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now you think, well, Spence, that's that's great, but we don't have that problem today. Yes, 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 we do. What is the problem today? The problem today is compromise. Compromise, compromise, compromise. So let me just kind of think about it like this. Okay, so you have God's standard right here. Alright? And then you have the world's standard right here. And the world says, you know what? We all need to get along. So if you will give a little bit, and we will give a little bit, we'll be together. Tracking? Here's the problem. Who set this right here? God did. God did. So if we compromise, what are we doing? Are 
are we elevating the standard of God? No! No! We're watering down the standard of God. We are, we are uh, manipulating, molesting, corrupting the Word of God. And yet this world says, well, you need to just compromise. You need to just give in. We give a little, you give a little. The problem is, is we do not have any authority to give. We don't have any right or privilege to change the standards that God has given us. So Balaam comes in and says, here's the deal. You don't have to beat him outright. You just intermarry. Interconduct business, if you will. Intercommerce. All of these things. And the next thing you know, you will make them ineffective and unidentifiable because they will abandon God and pursue all the rest of the gods. And you think, well, Spence, do we see that today? Yes, we do today. You think Satan has to defeat the church? No. He just has to make the church irrelevant. He just has to make the church unidentifiable. He just has to make the church where we are so watered down and so compromised and so given in to everything, we don't have anything to stand on. And the next thing you know, we have no effectiveness for the world because we can't show the world what the difference is of Jesus because we've just compromised and compromised and compromised and compromised. So he says, be careful. And so his criticism is that they have grabbed on to this teaching of Balaam. So 16, he says, Therefore, repent. Repent of the compromise. Repent of the giving in. Repent of constantly thinking, Well, you know what? I just need to get along and go along. We have never been called in God's Word to lower the values or the standards of God for the sake of going along with people. Ever. Ever. Do we love people? Yes. Do we seek unity and harmony at the expense of our own personal comfort and desires? Sure. Do we violate or corrupt the standards of God to please the fickleness of a lost world? No. So he says, be careful. You have these people who have this idea that we just need to compromise. So that's Pergamum. Thyatira is the fourth church. What does he say? Here we get to what Mr. Thompson was getting at here a few moments ago. Verse 20. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. What is he talking about? Is he have a church there in Thyatira and there is this woman by the name of Jezebel. Jezebel is never a good name. This is two different times you see a woman by the name of Jezebel never in a, never in a, in a, in a positive light. And here he says there's this woman that every Everybody knows that she's teaching and seducing and nobody's doing anything about it. I call it the problem of tolerance. The problem of tolerance. And sometimes we see this in the church today. We see cold churches. We see churches that are dealing with oppression and yet they're being faithful. We see churches that have given way to compromise. And we also see churches that are tolerating. And what are they tolerating? They're tolerating things that are clearly outside of the boundary of God's Word. Now, 
it gets a little dicey and it gets a little sticky because what do we do? If all of a sudden we see Ron Whitney come in and he's got those little bitty old skinny jeans on and he's decided to get the, the frosting tips on the tip of his hair and he's got the whole that, that whole stuff going on and he comes in and he's got a white claw in his hand and he just comes prancing in in some little platform shoes. <coughs> what do we do? Do we say? <laughs> do we say get out? It might come to that. <laughs> but you know, there's some steps that we need to take. We need to go to him and say, Ron, what's wrong? What did Shelly do to you? Why? Why? Why would Shelly make you do this? I mean, we, we come, there, there's a lot of things that we do in the, in, in, the, in the methodology of trying to reach out and trying to love that person. That doesn't mean the first time you walk in and you're, you've gone off the reservation that we immediately just, you know, cut your throat and throw you out to the ditch. No, we want to love on you. We want to come alongside of you. But there's that, and there's also the idea of saying there is all of this rank, blatant, rebellious, unashamed immorality, blasphemy against God, and all of this is going on, and you and I just go, well, we're, we're not to judge, and we're not to, we're, 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 it's, it's not our place to say anything, and you know, and, and, and I, I don't know how to say anything loving, and you know, and God can convict their heart. They're both ditches. They're both ditches. So the tolerance, the problem that Jesus is addressing through the pen of John and Thyatira, the problem with the tolerance is that the tolerance was affecting and influencing other people. Right? Other people thought, well, because they are doing it, that must mean it's okay. You've probably seen those churches. Those churches that say, you know what? You live however you want to live and you're welcome in any way you are. And my desire, as long as I get to serve here in some capacity or another, is that this church welcomes everybody. But at the same time, we are all trying to follow the model and the example of Jesus Christ. So it's one of those things, you come and then let us show you and point you to Jesus and if that means that that my behaviors then are modified or changed or I realize there's sin in my life that I need to deal with and put away and repent of, then that is what I do. Because I am trying to follow the model and the example and reflect the life, reflect the ministry, and reflect the Spirit of Christ. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to change you. I'm trying to say that there is no way that you and I can go from being a lost, wretched, black-hearted, cold sinner to being a child of God, growing and maturing in your faith, and there is no change. It's impossible. It's impossible. And I'm not asking you to change and look like me. Not all of you can be that lucky. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm just saying that when we come in and somebody says, well, they're going to ask me to be different. They're going to ask me to change. No, we all are trying to conform to the image of Christ. But 
if we have this idea that we're just going to be tolerant and just anybody and everybody and we're not going to say anything and we have no standards and everything is accepted and everything is welcome and everything is supported and everything is encouraged and everything is celebrated, then we become a tolerant place. And that has ramifications. So, he says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Now, chapter 3, chapter 3, let's go to the number 5 church, alright? Church of Sardis. Everybody see that? La, 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 verse second part of verse 1, depending on how your Bible is broken up. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Then, he gives them, this is what I want you to do. Wake up. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have now found your words complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. He says, wake up. Why? Because the church was asleep. There'll be a a difference, but since I'm telling the story, I get to tell it my way. Tucker and I were working in the armpit of the state of Oklahoma, out south of Arnett. And it's cold, it's wintertime, he drug me out there, our boots were staying wet all the time, couldn't get our boots to stay dry. They said, you go to Elk City... That's my story. They go to Elk City. They got these boot dryers. And that way, you get up, go back to work, your your boots will be dry. So we're like, we're going to Elk City. So we get off. We worked a 12-hour tire all night long. We get off, and we leave from Cheyenne, and we're headed down to Elk City. And when you get down there close to Elk City, the, the interstate makes a very sharp turn. The highway. Now, Tucker's story is that I was asleep. My story is they did not give me proper warning about the left-hand turn. <laughs> the result was, is we on ended up, we, we were in the grass, controlled, a controlled, a controlled maneuver, alright? We were, we were in a controlled way, but I remember, Tucker's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're off the road, you fell asleep. And I'm like, no, not ish, no, no, I'm, I'm, we're good, we're good. <laughs> But if you've driven long enough, right? if you've been around it long enough, you will know there are times that you've heard of other people, not you, I know not you, but there's other times that you've heard of other people where they get falling asleep, right? And then they start weaving back and forth. They start finding their way off the roadway, right? Because you are falling asleep. There's churches that are spiritually asleep. They may have services, they may have a Sunday morning service, they may have a Sunday night service, they may have a Wednesday night service, but they can be spiritually asleep. So he says, you have a reputation of being alive. Well, how do I interpret that? I interpret that he goes, you know what, everybody goes. Yeah, you still come together, you sing songs. Just because you sing songs doesn't mean you're spiritually alive. And, you know, somebody gets up and they have a message or they have a story or there's a time that they call it to be a sermon. You know, you can do that stuff and be spiritually dead. There's pastors that are doing it every single week that are spiritually dead. Spiritually dead people talking to spiritually dead people in the pews and they wonder what the problem is. So he says, you got this reputation. So people are like, oh, well you're singing. You must be spiritually alive. No. 
You don't have to be spiritually alive. Oh, well, you have a, a teaching time or a sermon time or a preaching time. That doesn't mean you're spiritually alive. Oh, well, you also have other activities throughout the week, and so that must mean you're spiritually No, that doesn't mean you're spiritually alive. You know, there's a lot of stuff we can do in the life of the church that doesn't require the function of the Holy Spirit. So just because we're going through the motions doesn't mean we're spiritually alive. And he says to the church in Sardis, you're going through all the actions, but you're dead spiritually. How can you tell whether it's a spiritually alive or a spiritually dead church? Love. Love? By their fruit. By their fruit? Lots of kids. Okay. <laughs> Lots of kids. Amen. Okay, so so when we moved in, so with the house the house that we're living in, um, we moved in less than three years ago. One of the things that my wife and I like, we, we like the idea of having a, a fruit orchard. Well, the problem is, is that you can either buy a fruit orchard, a mature, a mature fruit orchard ready to go, and that requires the kinds of funds that uh, Mr. Wayne Webb has, and I don't have those kinds of funds. <laughs> or, or the other option is, is that you buy the bare root, two foot tall trees, and you get those planted, and you got to wait about five years before they start putting on fruit. So, Mrs. and me, we say, we're going to go the cheaper route. And so we first moved in about two and a half years ago, we get, uh, we have probably 15 um, fruit trees uh, around the house, okay? So you get these trees planted, and it's always a bit of a... the dice maybe? I don't know if that's a right, I don't know if that's a, I can, if I can say roll the dice in church but it's kind of a rolling dice because you plan them and you do all this stuff but sometimes they just die. Especially at my house. There's things that die that they should have lived but it died anyways and so it's one of those things and so we just went through this winter right? With this winter and so we're sitting here and we're waiting. We're waiting to see if they all bud and if they all leaf out and so I've been going out there for the last month and a half and I kind of made my tour and then of course we had it's a cold snap and all that kind of but I'm looking and just this last week, the last tree put on leaves. Which means, which means that all of the trees made it through this winter. <laughs> Not guaranteeing. Hey, I'm just saying, they made it through this winter. Now, now, how do I know? Now, how do I know that that tree is alive? Like Ty said, it's it's the fruit, right? It, it's the growth. You see growth, you see fruit, and therefore it's alive. If you don't see growth and you don't see fruit, then you say that is dead. So how do you know the difference between a church that is spiritually alive and a church that is spiritually dead? Don't look at numbers. Don't look at budget. Don't look at buildings. Don't look at service times. Don't look at activities. Look at is there growth of people and is there spiritual fruit? So he says, Sardis, Sardis, Sardis. You're spiritually dead. Now, what do you do when you're spiritually dead? Verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So he says, either wake up or, going back to John 15 language, I'm going to come in and I'm going to prune you. Take you out. Spiritually dead. Is not a good thing for the life of the church. So there are some churches, though, that are spiritually dead. Does that mean that once that church spiritually dies, that it cannot be revived again? 
I don't think so. Why? Because the church in Sardis. He says it's spiritually dead and he is encouraging and calling the church to be revived. So if you saying, well, if it's spiritually dead, that means it's over, done, might as well just sell the building and go on. No, Jesus is, has this expectation at Sardis that you're spiritually dead right now, but you know what? There can still be life brought back into you. How many churches are in Wellston? Ten. Eleven. Ten. Thirteen. Thirteen? Well, nine. Within the city limits? Within the city limits. Well, with the Wilson address. Right. Uh, okay, a bunch. All right. <laughs> I'll name them. I thought you were going to tell us. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bunch. Wilson Christian, First Baptist, Methodist, Church of Christ, the Lutheran, and um, Assembly of God, and Missionary. Calvary. Calvary. Not Calvary. A bunch. Cornerstone. Cornerstone's not the most. Success. A bunch. A bunch. A bunch. Now, do you think that every one of those churches is spiritually alive. Don't don't say it. Don't say anything out loud. I'm just asking. Do you think that every single one of those churches is spiritually alive? I don't know. I, and I'm not. I, this isn't me where I try to say, well, they are, or they are not. That's not my call. What I'm trying to say is, is that if you think about just in the community of Wellston and how many churches that are there, we need spiritually healthy churches. There is enough lost people within a 10 mile radius of this building to fill up all a bunch of churches two and three times over. There's enough lost people that we don't have to compete. We don't have from one church to another church. We don't have to compete for sheep. There's plenty, plenty of goats everywhere. <laughs> That's what the Bible talks about, Miss Carol. You got the lost people are goats and the saved people are sheep. There are plenty of goats everywhere. There's enough goats to fill up our churches twice over and every church be full. Now, are all the churches the same? No, all the churches are not the same. But what do we need in the community of Wilson? We need spiritually healthy churches. But you go around long enough and you will see the ebb and the flow. And a lot of times it rises and falls in leadership. A lot of times it comes with fads. A lot of times it goes with ebbs and flows of families or movements or cultures or or some of those things. You remember, uh, does, does anybody remember the million more in 54? No? No? Okay. So Southern Baptist Convention, all right, they had a big drive. 1954, they wanted a million more people brought into the church through conversion and baptism and regeneration. They wanted a million more in 54. That was a big push they had, right? Okay? So it was, I, I don't remember, I wasn't born back then, but I've, heard, I've read stories. So it was one of those things that they, there was these pushes, right? So we're not all the same. However, Spiritually healthy churches matter to community. So, chapter 3, he says, you're spiritually dead. Now, let's look at Philadelphia. Ooh, 
I gotta hurry. Philadelphia. Alright, so he's talking about the church of Philadelphia, and down in verse 8, the last part of verse 8, what does he say? I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So remember I told you there's five chapters that he criticizes, two chap two, I'm sorry, five churches that he criticizes, two churches that he praises. So Smyrna was the first church that he praised. Philadelphia is the second church that he praised. And notice what he says. He says, I know you don't have anything. You don't have a lot of means. You don't have a lot of buildings. You don't have a lot of prestige. You don't have a lot of reputation. You don't have a lot of possessions. But you have not denied my name. Sometimes we evaluate the success of a church based upon the standards of success from the world of business. And what do we measure the standard of success from the world of business? By the size of your buildings, the amount of the money you have in your budget, and the number of people you have in the pews. And so we measure church based upon the metrics of a fast food restaurant. The problem is, is we're not a fast food restaurant. Do we keep track of numbers? Yes, because numbers are our friends. And numbers give us trends. And numbers give us information. So do we want to keep track of numbers in Sunday school attendance? Do we want to keep track of how many people we're averaging on a Sunday morning attendance? Yes, because they show us trends. And they show us how we need to prepare. And how we need to plan. And how we need to think about moving the the next one year, five year, ten years of ministry. Those are all important. But if we base the entire success of this church off of how many people we had in attendance on a Sunday morning service two weeks ago we're missing the point the question is have we denied Jesus now I'm not asking if you stood down the street corner and said Jesus does not live I do not believe in Jesus I have nothing to do with for Jesus I renounce my faith in him no But when you know that Jesus has called you to obedience and obedience looks like service and you say, God, I'm not going to serve you right now because I'm going to serve myself. That is denying Jesus. So what you've done is you've just said, you know what, Jesus, you're in charge until I want to be in charge and now I'm going to be in charge and now you're not in charge. And so it's not a matter of you and I standing on the street corner denouncing our faith and announcing who He is and announcing the the, the deity of Christ. The question is, is how many times have we found ourselves both guilty and tempted on a daily basis of saying, I know that this is faithful obedience and submission to God in this moment. Am I going to do it or am I going to say no and do something else? And that is where... That is where we have to be honest with ourselves and to say, denying my name, as he talks about in verse 8, is not a matter of standing at the street corner. When we deny the name of Jesus, it's something as simple as saying, I know what He wants me to do, and I'm going to do what I want to instead. So when I look at that two-year-old, and he is reaching for the bag of potato chips, and I tell him, no, no, And he turns around and he looks at me and he calculates in his head. Daddy said no. Those potato chips say yes. 
Is it worth the reward to risk the wrath? And he makes that decision. And if that two-year-old and all of his, oh, he's innocent. He's not innocent. (laughs) And if he turns around and goes, I didn't hear you, and reaches for those potato chips, what has he done? He has denied my authority as his father, and he is now giving way to his authority and his desires. He has denied me. And so he says, verse 3, or chapter 3, when it comes to the church of Philadelphia, he says, you don't have very many possessions, but you know this, you have not denied Jesus. Oh, what would it be like if when he was writing to this church and this faith family, he could write to us and go, you know what? It's not a matter of your possessions. It's not a matter of your money. It's not a matter of your prestige. You have not denied me. Then Laodicea. I've got just 30 seconds. Laodicea, verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. He said, here is the problem. You're just lukewarm. Now here's the way I think about it. Used to at airports, you would have wind socks. Sometimes you get the oil filled tank batteries and you'll see these wind socks. And the wind socks will tell you which way the prevailing direction of the wind is. Weather vanes used to do the same thing. They would turn and they would show you the direction of the wind. Okay, so you go on these oil filled sites and they'll sometimes on the tank battery they'll have this wind sock. It'll be a, a long orange streamer, if you will. What is it saying? It's saying this is the direction of the wind right now. How do I think of it in the terms of the church of Laodicea? The church of Laodicea, they were wind socks. They weren't good for anything. They weren't doing anything. They were just saying, we're just going to show you where the fad is going. Where the popular opinion is going. Where the tickling of people's ears is going. We're going to tell you where the people pleasers are going. We're just going to tell you what everybody wants to hear, what everybody wants to see, and what everybody wants to do. We're just going to be windsocks up here just blowing in the wind. The Word of God has not called you and I to be a windsock. The Word of God has called you and I to be not even a weather vane, but a compass pointing people to Jesus. I wish I had more time to talk about Laodicea, but I'm out of time right now. Questions, comments, pushbacks?